a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the, like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive, uh, olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation." God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, this morning, um, we come to the end of the book of Habakkuk, right? In chapter one, we had the prophet wondering, what is going on, Lord, right? And he, and he voices his complaints and his concerns and anxieties to God. And then last week, we saw the prophet waiting, right? And he, in chapter two, he's complained in chapter one. He's wondering why the Babylons and why the Babylonians, how can this be God's will? And in chapter two, God interacts with uh, Habakkuk and he explains why he is doing what and it ends in verse 20 of chapter 2, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Reminded of his sovereignty and his majesty and that he is spreading his glory across the face of the earth. So here in chapter 3, Habakkuk now responds. God's revealed himself and Habakkuk has no more complaints. He can't say a thing. 
He simply worships God. That's the framework that Habakkuk gives us for interacting and and facing fearful times. We wonder, we wait, and we worship. And this cycle is just an iterative, ongoing cycle as we walk through times of uncertainty and chaos. Well, this morning, we are looking at the worship aspect. And so let's start with something that I think is vitally important for all of us to understand as we face fearful times, and that is, how do we pray effectively? And the first two verses, Habakkuk gives us insight into the essentials of effective prayer as we face um, difficult times. You know, chapter three is very different in tone than chapter one. Uh, chapter three is much more contemplative. It's meditative. It's a thoughtful, composed prayer. It's actually a poem. All of chapter three is a poem that is meant to be song, sung. So it's a poem song that is the prayer of Habakkuk. And in it, he reveals to us and gives us insight into the, the essential components of a prayer life that is going to end up being effective. Two of them are very obvious. One of them is a little more subtle. And so to help us see the obvious ones, I want to read from uh, the New International Translation, the first two verses again. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on however you pronounce this work. We don't know how to pronounce it, and we don't know what it means, okay? Uh, when we think it's, it's a musical term of something, it, it actually, it, it, you know, in its literal verse, it just means something that comes from deep emotion. Um, it, it's actually the, the, the base of this word is how you behave when you're drunk, okay? You know how you're, whatever. And, and so this word is it's coming, it has something to do with deep emotion and that, that, in other words, this song is to be sung with deep emotion. Lord, I have heard your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them, make your deeds known in wrath. Remember mercy. A couple of obvious components of effective prayer. Awe, right? Awe, adoration of God's greatness. Habakkuk has been reminded of how holy and how mighty and just and sovereign God is. He's interacted with God. He's now understanding that God is actively spreading his glory around the earth. He's seen that the mysteries of God, it's mysterious. How can God use the Babylonians to correct Judah, when the Babylonians are, are so evil in Habakkuk's mind, but now he understands, he has insight, and he sees something that normally with our human minds, we just simply can't comprehend. He's come face to face with the absolute otherness of God, the absolute supremacy and majesty of God. And then he responds with an indispensable aspect of prayer, adoration. Awe, this act of being in awe of God. And then you see in this verse another uh, component, supplication. He makes petition. He makes supplication to God, but now he does it in line with God's will. He says, I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them. Renew your deeds. Do what you said that you're going to do in our day, in my time. In other words, make these deeds known in wrath remember mercy. You know, all of us know what it is like to pray and not have our prayers answered, right? 
I mean, we saw this at the very beginning of chapter one. Here's uh, Habakkuk. He's been praying and agonizing before God, and God is silent. He's not answering his prayer requests, which would seem to be very reasonable prayer requests. Lord, make our country more just. Would you stop the crime and the killing and the, the way people are taking advantage of the poor? I mean, these are all good things that he's praying for, yet God doesn't answer his prayer. We've all experienced this, right? We've all experienced praying and asking God for things and bringing our requests to God, maybe our complaints to God, and God just doesn't answer us. And it's like, are you even there? We wonder what's going on. Why don't we see our prayers answered? Why don't we get the answers? You know, Jesus' apostles, two of his apostles, they address the why. They speak to this. Uh, James, the, pro, uh, the apostle James, he does it from a, a little bit more of a negative perspective. He gives us a negative answer as to why we don't have our prayers answered. And then the apostle John gives us a positive. James says this, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Why do we not get our prayers answered? It's because we're asking them from a me-oriented perspective. It's our agenda. It's something that we want for ourselves, for our comfort, for our pleasure, or, or you just fill in the blank. Now, John, he comes at it from a different perspective. John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And this is a, a different perspective. John says, listen, all of your prayers will be answered. You will get exactly what you ask for when you ask according to the will of God. When our prayers line up with the will of God, God carries it out every time. And this is what Habakkuk experiences. You see, Habakkuk's perspective has changed. And so now his prayer has changed. He asks God, God, do your work. And God, would you do it in my day when I'm alive? And, and God, when you do this work, remember who you are. Will you bring grace and mercy even in a time of judgment? He aligns his prayer with the will of God, and that makes all the difference. Hey, church, let me ask you a question. When you pray, do you pray in line with God's will, or are your prayers more often a my agenda orientation? I got to tell you, uh, a lot of my prayer life, I look and evaluate it. If I'm honest with myself, honest with you, it will tend to always be me or agenda oriented. And so prayers don't get answered. And God has to do a work in my heart for my prayer life to actually become somewhat effective. James Montgomery Voice, he uh, uh, writes this. He says, usually when we pray to God for some specific project, we are asking God to renew our work. We're asking him to do something that we want. It's important to us. It's like building a castle of dominoes. 
So long as the structure goes up unhindered, we seldom think of God. We do not need him. But suddenly something jars the table a bit and the dominoes tumble. Now we become alert to prayer. Have you ever experienced that, right? You're just going along in life, but now life gets upset. And what do we immediately do? Oh God, right? We go right back to prayer then because the dominoes have tumbled We say, oh God, renew the work. The structure is tumbling. Our interest is really in what we are building and not on what God may desire. We need to learn that God may not be interested in our little piles of dominoes. That's significant, isn't it? He may not even be interested in our little pile, our work and what we think is important. We need to come to the point where we say, renew your deeds, revive your work. These are the obvious components of effective prayer. Awe, praying in line with God's will. But there is a subtle and extremely foundational component of effective prayer that's in this chapter, and it's summed up in the little word humility. It's subtle because Habakkuk doesn't say to us, I am now humble, therefore I pray, right? The minute you say you're humble, you're not. But we glean the humility and the importance of humility in prayer when we compare the tone of chapter 3 and the prayer in chapter 3 with the tone of the prayers in chapter 1, right? The prayers in chapter 1 were raw, and they were spontaneous, and they were even angry, and they were harsh. And Habakkuk is interacting with very uh, emotional level that is just getting it out there, right? And chapter three, this prayer, this prayer is very well thought out. It's the result of contemplation and meditation. It's a prayer that, as I mentioned a second ago, that is composed as a poem. It's it's a, a long poem that you can actually sing. And church, we need both forms of prayer, right? We need those times where we are just raw before God and we pour out our hearts and the burdens that are before us, the anxieties, the fears, the emotions, and just lay it out there with brutal honesty and voice what we're thinking and feeling. God's big enough. He can handle it. And so I'm thankful for the prayers of chapter one, but we also need the prayers like this that are the result of a healthy interaction with God. Prayers that are, result, that are the result of a soul and a heart that is being recalibrated due to interacting and talking with and seeing God and gaining the knowledge of God. Prayers that we think over and we even write them out and offer them back to God. Habakkuk had heard from God He's been touched by God. He has now the knowledge of God. His eyes are now on God. And so he can no longer compare Judah to Babylon and conclude, well, they, those people out there are so much worse than we are here in Judah. What's happened to him is what's happened to many men and women in the Old Testament and through the ages When God interacts with us and the knowledge of God becomes real in our heart 
and we get a glimpse of his holiness and his majesty, humility arises. All of our pride, all of our protest, our complaints, our self-justifications, our self-righteousness, all of our blame shifting, it's all shattered in a heartbeat. When we take our eyes off ourselves and we put them on God, the first thing that we are reminded of is the reality of our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, and, and the holiness and the absolute otherness of God and how in need of His grace and His mercy we are. We quickly realize that the problem is in here. The problem is in here just as much as it is out there. That's what happens. You know, Babylon did not have the benefit of the knowledge of God like Judah did. Our culture does not have the benefit of the knowledge of God and the understanding of the gospel as we do here at Covenant Church. They sin, they rebel, they do horrible things, but it's done oftentimes out of ignorance. What's our excuse? We have the knowledge of God. We have the truth of the gospel. We have no excuse. And so as a result, we have no right to feel superior to anyone who is out there in Babylon and think highly of those of us in the church. Church, when we enter into times of fear and anxiety and chaos, the first question that we must ask of God is not what is going on. The first question we need to ask is, God, would you reveal my blinders so that I can see myself and what you are wanting to teach me in this time? Would you help me to understand what you're doing in my life? This personal interaction with God, it changes our posture. And when our posture is changed to that of humility, our prayers become more effective. Doesn't God tell the Israelites, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Two obvious components for effective prayer, but this subtle one, humility, is foundational. Habakkuk was in all likelihood a Levite. The Levites were responsible for the the worship of God at the temple. So in some way, he's associated with the temple and the corporate worship of God's people. This is why it makes sense that he would commend this song to the temple and give musical instructions. That's what the first little word there is. And then at the end, he he tells them, you know, do it with the stringed instruments and and all of that. In a lot of ways, this prayer song is much like a psalm. It resembles the psalms, which are meant to to both challenge us and to exhort us and to teach us, and most importantly, encourage God's people as they walk through times of trials and tribulations. And, And that's what the bulk of this chapter is all about. 
We glean important insight into how to pray effectively, but we also glean encouragement from these verses, verses 3 to 19. Now, just to be clear, the encouragement that Habakkuk offers is not some pie in the sky, Pollyanna, head in the clouds, shallow, you know, power of positive thinking, your best life is going to happen, don't worry about it, be happy, okay? It's not what Habakkuk offers us here. Habakkuk is a realist. I mean, he is the epitome of a realist, and he knows what is coming, and he is shaken to the core of his heart. He's petrified. He is terrified. He's not skipping down the road whistling Dixie. He's scared. And you see this in verses 16 and 17. These verses paint a a grim picture of absolute, complete devastation. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now that's a list. What's he saying there? Okay, let's think about it. It's a list that goes from lesser severity to the ultimate severity. Figs, right? We're not going to have figs, folks. You know what that's our equivalent? All the ice cream and dessert is going to be taken away. No more ice cream and dessert. Ladies, no more chocolate. It's gone, okay? The figs were, were the sweet things that they made their desserts out of, and that was, the, that was the pleasure in life. And then he moves from that to maybe another important element, wine. <laughs> he goes from figs to grapes and wine, and wine was important in that day. That was not only what they drank, they used it to purify their water. So they had clean water, and so wine was an important aspect. And then he goes to the olives, and and we know, I mean, olive oil, right? Extra virgin olive oil. How many of us cook with? I mean, olives and olive oil was a staple crop in the Mideast, and they depended upon it for cooking and for their rest and and just life in general. It was also, olive oil was a medicinal uh, element they would put for skin conditions and eye conditions. It was very important. And then he goes from that, he says, not only are we not going to have dessert and wine and, and uh, our oil that we need to cook, we're not going to have anything to cook. The crops of the field are gone. The wheat, the vegetables, it's all destroyed. And then if you really want to understand how devastating it is, he goes, all the flocks, all the herbs, in other words, the, the main component in the ancient world that, that your wealth was based upon was your herds. And so, so all of your assets, all your 401k, your savings accounts, your checking account, everything is gone. He says, I look at this, this is what's coming. This is complete economic devastation. Worse than our depression in the 1920s. And he says, I look at this and I tremble. And, and I'm scared and I'm petrified and my bones are weak. He literally says, my bowels. <laughs> I'll just leave it alone, okay? That's how bad it is. And in light of this complete devastation, and yet in light of all this devastation, 
What you see is his faith being strengthened and he's encouraged. And he's actually able to worship and honor God with his life. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And in light of all, all this is coming, I know it's coming. It scares the bejeebus out of me. And yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Tim Keller writes that we should ask ourselves two really important questions as we read verses 18 and 19. How do we rejoice in the Lord in the face of fearful times? And what does it actually look like to take joy in the God of my salvation when our life may be falling down around us? These are important questions. And, and the metaphor that is used in verse 19, it's an important one. It helps us understand what it looks like to take joy in the God of our salvation. Verse 19 tells us to appreciate the fact that God is pushing us up into high places, mountainous areas in fearful times. And that can be somewhat of an oxymoron, right? Uh, by including high places and saying, this will help you with your fear. Because many of us, when it comes to high places, what? Eh, we get a little afraid, right? Um, we get a little queasy in the stomach. How many of you love heights? Well, let me rephrase that. How many of you don't like heights? Raise your hand. Yeah, most of us. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was up in North Carolina with uh, Catherine and Jacob and, and his girlfriend, Jill, and we watched this movie called Free Solo. How many of you have seen Free Solo? It's on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. You are going to scream. Okay? I mean, as I'm watching this movie, this is about El Capitan in California. It's been like the obstacle to free climbers for generations. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. And people have tried to climb it without ropes and things, and that did not end well, right? And so along comes this guy, Alex Hanold. He's the world's premier free climber. And a couple of years ago, he starts climbing El Capitan. And he did it in such a cool way. They had cameras stationed and drones and all this kind of stuff. They have all these people with ropes, because they're smart, with cameras you know, up above him, filming him. I mean, look at this dude. Is that nuts or what? Okay. And so as you're watching this movie, as I'm watching this movie, and at times I'm going, ah, right? <laughs> we don't typically like high places because they're not comfortable. And the reason why this metaphor is included is if exactly that right there. You know, fearful times, God is reminding us that he's going to push us into places, high places, that, and, and it's not always going to be comfortable. It can be dangerous and risky and uncertain, but it's actually a better place. And the reason why is because in the ancient world, um, getting up to the heights 
and to the mountains. Yeah, it was a dangerous journey, right? They didn't have roads that were paved that would take you up to the peak and to the pinnacle and safety of your car. You had to climb and you had to ultimately blaze a trail if anybody else was gonna come. But once you got up to the height of the mountain or the top of that strong hill and you cleared out the land and you had a village or a, or a little town that was established there, it was the epitome of safety and security. You could see all around you, you knew if an enemy was coming, and in the ancient world, you could not fight an effective battle uphill. And so going up a mountain against an enemy, you know, if an enemy was attacking your village and they're coming up a mountain, you only needed a few men who were well-armed and trained to repel a much larger force because they could not fight effectively going up the hill. So that became a, a stronghold. And it became a safe place and a secure place, a place of perspective. This is the point of this metaphor, right? I'm facing a trial, this fearful time. Habakkuk says, I'm gonna draw on the joy of God in my salvation by trusting in him and drawing from him. I'm going to let him use this trial to push me up into a, man, it can be scary, to a place that is high and risky, but when he gets me there, I'm going to be in a better place, a more secure place, a safer place. John Piper, uh, many years ago, wrote a, an article after he was diagnosed with cancer that was called, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Don't waste your cancer. And the point that he made, his point was that suffering and tribulations and fearful times can either break you emotionally and spiritually, or they can push you to new heights of emotional and spiritual health and strength. One of the two. And it comes by taking joy in the God of my salvation. Now the question is how? How do we rejoice in the Lord? How do we take comfort in the joy of the God of our salvation? Well, it happens, first of all, concurrently with our sorrow. Let's don't miss the fact, as I mentioned a second ago, that in verse 16, Habakkuk is essentially saying, I am an absolute mess. I am a wreck. I am petrified. He is weeping and he is crying and he is distressed. And at the same time, as he says, I'm undone, horrible. At the same time, he says, I will wait quietly. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's don't miss that. They happen at the same time. Church, you know, back in 2016, most of you know, I took a sabbatical. And the reason why I took that sabbatical was I was breaking. I was breaking under the strain of, of years of trials and tribulations in our personal life. I was breaking under the strain of, of ministry, stress. I was not healthy spiritually, emotionally, even physically. I was not healthy at all. And things began to turn around for me during that sabbatical when I was finally able to weep in sorrow, to grieve over the loss and the pain and things that were in my life, and at the same time rejoice in the Lord of my salvation. D. 
These two things have to happen at the same time. Rejoicing in the Lord of my salvation and weeping with sorrow and grief, they happen concurrently. They go hand in hand. If you do one without the other, it's a recipe for emotional and spiritual sickness. If you're just rejoicing in the Lord, putting on a posture, a fake front, a stiff upper lip, don't let him get you down, fake it till you make it, that is all bogus psychobabble. You will be emotionally and spiritually unhealthy. We have to interact with the trial, the pain, the suffering. We have to experience it, we have to feel it, we have to weep over it, we have to bemoan it, we have to cry, at times shout and rejoice in the Lord at the same time, at the same time. It's hard to do that. How does that happen? That's why this chapter is so important. I'm not gonna read verses three to 15, but it starts with us remembering and looking back at God's actions and who he is in history. This is what's happening in verses three to 15. Habakkuk takes us through the history of Israel. He's remembering the greatness, the goodness, the sustaining power of God. This is important, why? Because for us to move forward in our faith, we must remember our past and recount what God has done. In my sabbatical, when things started breaking loose inside of me, I took a journal. And I began to write simple prayers. I would read scripture and I would interact with God with short written prayers. And I then began to remember and recount. I came across some Psalms where the psalmist in the midst of his trouble was still recounting the goodness of God to him in the middle of his trial. And so I began to ask myself, how is God good to me? How has he been good to me? And I gotta tell you, my first few answers were pretty, pretty shallow. The longer I meditated and the more I thought and the more I prayed and the more I asked God, would you, I can't do this, I need your grace. Would you remove the blinders so that I can take off my eyes off of myself and see how you have been good to me even in difficult times? And God answered that prayer. And he will answer that prayer for you if it's sincere. And when that happened, I began to remember and I began to fill out pages of how God was good. And then I began to weep. Sometimes, I mean, there, there, I, I felt horrible. I was like, am, am I going through menopause? I'm not supposed to have menopause, I'm a guy, right? But God began to do a work and it started with remembering this chapter tells us something else. It's solidified and it's nailed down into the core of our being by singing the gospel into our hearts through corporate worship. That's how it just, man, it gets cemented into our hearts and the healing of God occurs. In a few moments, Paxson's going to bring us a hymn that comes from this chapter. Back in the 1700s, a, a man by the name of William Cowper, who was friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, they worked together and collaborated, writing many great hymns of the faith. And Paxton's going to 
tell us this story and we're gonna sing this song together. But the point of it is, is that this aspect of taking the scripture, the gospel, and then singing it together, something happens there. Part of the reason why I'm convinced the evangelical church is in trouble is because the value of corporate worship, coming together, singing together, proclaiming the truth of the gospel together in one voice, even if we don't have a good singing, this has been de-emphasized in our individualistic, consumeristic culture where it's kind of optional. Well, I can just do my own thing at home or out to be. No, there is something that God does in us. There's a, God builds us up in a very unique, powerful way through the discipleship that happens in corporate worship. And Habakkuk is hitting on this. That's why he takes this whole prayer song and he gives it to the choir master for the people of God to sing together. It's so important that we regularly gather together and we experience this. Last week, I mentioned to you a book by a fellow pastor. It's just been released actually this week called Faithful Doubt. That's the title. I think last week I might have said Fearful Doubt. That's not, that wasn't unique. It's Faithful Doubt, Travis Scott. As he, as he comes to the end of his book, he touches on this thought that the, the way Rejoicing in the Lord and the joy in the God of my salvation is solidified into our lives. The way we move forward in our faith is not only do we remember our past, we recount what God has done and we do this through song. And so I wanna close with something that he wrote. When you are silent and alone, your problems and those of the world will loom large. They'll seem bigger than they really are. When you get stuck in your own head, you won't be able to see the real problems of life in this world with the proper perspective. Corporate worship takes us out of ourselves, particularly when we are singing. It's in the regular worship of God publicly with others that we learn how to be faithful with our doubts. Through song, we approach God with our whole person, our head, our heart, and our body. As we sing, this remembering of his person and his actions is not just an intellectual exercise, it's a whole person experience. We sing his praise, his adoration, our lament, and our thanks. As we sing these things, the reality of his goodness and grace is woven more deeply into our being. Through the practice of singing, God's goodness and faithfulness become more fully a part of our conscious thinking, but they also begin to reshape our deepest hopes and longings by speaking comfort into the hidden parts of our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. Remove our blindness and help us to be able to see the depth of your goodness the breadth of your holiness and your superior awesomeness, your absolute otherness. Remove the blinders so that we can gain perspective. Lord, give us the grace that we need as you push us up to a mountaintop and it is uncomfortable and we may not like it, but we know, Lord, that you're pushing us in a time of trial to a higher place for our ultimate good. 
and for the glory that you're going to manifest in our lives. Give us the grace we need to not rebel against these times, but to come before you humbly and let you do your work in our lives as you do your, spread your kingdom in this world. God, make us a people who remember your greatness and sing your glory and praise. Magnify and adore you for who you are. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.